Our sermon text today is from Psalm 4. Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, if you haven't, go ahead and turn to Psalm 4. We're going to walk all the way through it. It's a shorter psalm, but it's packed. So pray with me and then we'll get into it. Lord God, your word does not return void. Your word is the source of our joy. And it points us to you. Would you do that right now? We know nothing can be done without you. So would you be gracious to us, O Lord, and hear us when we call on you. Satisfies our souls. In Jesus' name. So our sleep has been forever changed since the advent of the light bulb, right? The average adult needs between seven and nine hours of sleep, but our circadian rhythms have been thrown off ever since the light bulb. Then came the TV, then phones. People stay up later, and they get up earlier. Sleep scientist Matthew Walker calls the sleep epidemic, epidemic the worst public health crisis we are facing. And we're probably affected by this in many ways we don't realize. We need better sleep. It is clear that God designed us for sleep. And many of us have a disjointed relationship to it. Some of us sleep too much because we just don't want to face the day or the depression won't lift. Some of us too sleep too little because we think we have to prove ourselves through our productivity. And some of us just keep having kids. <laughs> You're like, I'd love to sleep, but six kids times three to six months of newborn sleep plus bad dreams plus the two-year-old trying to kill the monster in the closet in the middle of the night means I haven't slept well in like a decade. Some of us look at our kids and we long to sleep like our kids do. Or you'd love to sleep like you did when you were a kid and you slept 12 hours a night. You didn't even think about it. You didn't have to plan for it. When you slept, maybe growing up, you... Maybe your parents gave you a a bedtime prayer. Mine taught me one. It went, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Watch over me through the night and wake me with the morning light. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And then as a kid, I would add rather desperately, and please help me have good dreams and not bad dreams. 
because I had vivid nightmares throughout my childhood. My mom may or may not have let me watch Chucky when I was a kid. She's a saint, but I don't let her live that one down. So I would flee to my parents' room for safety after a bad dream, and I would just lay on their floor next to the bed, and that would be enough to help me fall back to sleep soundly, and usually no more bad dreams. What I needed, and what we all need to sleep soundly, is a sense of safety. Being near my parents brought my soul to rest, brought real peace to me, and that enabled me to sleep. So our psalm is going to help us sleep better. But it's going to do that by helping our souls find rest. Our souls find peace. Pastor Brian Hedges put it like this. If you want rest of body, you've got to first find rest of soul. So that's what we're after as we get into this. We're going to explore in this psalm what that looks like by looking at first the threats to peace. And then the key to peace. So threats to peace. Then the key to peace. As we look at the threats of peace first, see that this all comes in our suffering, in our trials, because that's David's context here. We're not positive on Psalm 4, but it seems most likely that it was written during Absalom's rebellion. This psalm is known as an evening psalm to Psalm 3's morning psalm, which Adam preached on. And we know that Psalm 3 is written during Absalom's rebellion, so this one is most likely too. And we learn about his rebellion in uh, 2 Samuel. Absalom, David's beloved son, had started enticing people to follow him as king. Don't follow my dad as king. Follow me. Absalom had a great reputation. He has cut his hair once a year and he has five pounds of hair when he cuts it. I don't know how much hair weighs, but some glorious locks. He probably has a gorgeous beard like so many of you do here at church. You think you're so cool. You oil up your beard before church. You come in and make those of us who, like me with whatever you call this on my face, feel all inadequate. Just trying our best here, guys. So Absalom begins smooth talking, seducing David's people. What has David done for you lately? Does he even care about us? Does he even know how to run things anymore? He doesn't even know what he's doing. I could really turn things around. And he eventually wins the hearts of the people and the army. And he drives David and some of his loyal followers out of his own kingdom. And then Absalom secures his place as usurper. Bad. But these circumstances didn't just fall David out of nowhere. He knows that in real ways, these circumstances were caused by his own sin. So it just adds to his heartbreak. This is the tragedy the prophet Samuel warned him about in 2 Samuel 2.11. He said, in response to David's adultery and murder said, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. This is where we find David here in our psalm. In a cave, probably guilt-ridden, heartbroken, blood on his hands, and his kingdom in disarray. Deep turmoil in his soul. And the future full of unknowns. What will become of my family? What will become of the son I love? Of my men? Of my kingdom? And we see how easy it would be here for him to run away from God. It'd be understandable. It'd be so easy to wallow. It'd be so easy for him to start just anxiously trying to fix things. But instead of being drawn away from God, he sets his heart toward God from the jump. And he so models for us the first step in our quest for peace. Turn to God in prayer. 
doesn't have to be long and drawn out. This is one, two sentences. God, help. And it's so crucial that we see here, as we've been saying throughout the summer, the Psalms speak to the big and dramatic like this, but they also hit us in our mundane and common lives where you find yourself daily. Sometimes in a way, maybe the big stuff is easier. That's what you're prepared for. One author writes this. I spent a few months in a war-torn area of the world, and I was surprised to find that there, in the midst of tensions and dangers, I felt far more at peace than in my average American household day with a baby and a toddler. I had a theology of suffering that allowed me to pay attention in crisis, to see small flickers of mercy in profound darkness. And hear this. But my theology was too big to touch a typical day in my life. I developed the habit of ignoring God in the midst of the daily grind. Another author says that his problem is, is everydayness. And keep that in mind as we go through this. This is for us. Things big or small can draw you toward God or can draw you away from God. Can draw you toward peace or away from peace. So verse 1, he cries out to God, God of my righteousness, help. He looks back. You've helped me so often before. You've always helped your people. Do it again. And then so key here is be gracious to me. That's how he says it. Be gracious to me. Oh God, help me work through all this. Not because I deserve it. He knew very well he did not deserve it. I don't even deserve to speak to you. But because you are gracious, I am calling on you. Prayer is the beginning of his path to peace. And not just his own peace. He's still king. He has kingly duties and responsibilities. He's still gravely concerned about the peace and well-being of his people. Not just the ones with him, but the traitors. So for us, you must learn that not only does suffering threaten your own peace, but it threatens your ability to love. When hard times hit, there are others who need you. And if you don't know how to seek peace in suffering, then you will not be able to lead and to love well. So David here does that. He turns, right after he calls out to God, he turns to the traitors. And we see that our first threat to peace is lies. Lies. Look at verse 2. Oh, men. Oh, men of honor, that word can be translated. He's talking to his, his former friends and comrades. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? And how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? So the men had been seduced. By the lies of a false king. You see that there? They loved the words of Absalom. They didn't just listen to it. They wholeheartedly gave themselves to it and followed after it. And that's nothing new here. John Chrysostom, one of the great preachers of the early church, said the following. Regards to this verse right here. If I were the fittest in the world to preach a sermon to the whole world, gathered together in one congregation, I had some high mountain for a pulpit from whence I might have a prospect of all the world to hear me. I might choose to preach upon no other text than in the Psalms. O mortal men, how long will you love vanity and follow after deception? Why would he choose this text? All the Bible. Because he knew he knew that delusions and deceptions lie at the heart of our human condition. The great lie, we read in Genesis 3, the terrible lie that Eve ate at the fall and that we've all been eating ever since was so similar to the lie people were believing here. 
is the king fit to be king? Can't you figure out what's best for yourself? Did he really say? Did God really say? Does he even really love you? Is the king looking out for you? Does he even care? This lie cuts to the heart of who we are. And what it's after is undermining our allegiance to God. And how often do we hear the same whisper? Does God really love you? How many have refused to come to God because they conclude that either this king isn't strong or he doesn't care or he isn't good? David wants his men to know here that God's king is God's king. That's where he goes in verse 3. Look back down. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. God has set his rightful king on the throne and set him apart for himself. So David's telling his men, if, if I am God's king, how do you think this is going to end for you? There's some anger here, but this is also David's compassion towards those who are his enemies now. For the ones who are traitors and bailed on him. How long? How long, my loyal men? How long will you rage against heaven? You, can't, you cannot win. It's a loving heart cry to his countrymen. Don't believe these lies, my beloved brothers. This will not end well for you. And don't believe the great lie, my brothers and sisters. Deception. So lies threaten our peace. And then we see anger is the next threat. Look at verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. David's still talking to the traitors here. And the word be angry is often translated tremble, or as the King James does, stand in awe, shake before God. Here David is telling the traitors, this, this is not God's way. Tremble, stand in awe of the God you are disobeying. Stop your sinning. Go to your bed tonight and please consider your ways. Get still before God and reckon with him. And if you continue to go about your religious duties... As if you're not a traitor, stop thinking your sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's what he means there. You need to get your heart right with him and really, really trust him and consider him. And understand this may be aimed directly at you. Perhaps you come to church week after week, faithfully offer your sacrifices while you know you've given yourself openly to some corruptible practice or some false king. Or maybe you're not a Christian. You may look around and see how messed up the world can be. And so you've eaten a lie as well, just like these men did. You want nothing to do with this God. And he's saying this here. Reflect and ponder when you're up at night. When you're undistracted by the endless murmur of noise that drowns your conscience out. Consider that this messed up brokenness around you that you're so mad at also resides inside you. That's why your peace is so shaky. That's why you don't have deep security in your soul. You want all the wickedness to end. Why doesn't he just end it all? And he'd have to end you too. Because your own heart is messed up. The Times once sent out an inquiry to famous authors asking the question, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote back and he said, Dear Sir, I am. 
you're part of what's wrong, and I'm part of what's wrong. David knows that about these men here. When God makes everything right, as he will, and ends the rebellion, the rebels will be ended too. And he loves the rebels. He's a compassionate king. So consider what it means to stop rebelling against him and turn to him. He gives new hearts. He turns rebels into friends. Now this text may sound a little familiar. Because Paul grabs onto this text and he uses it when he quotes in Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Sound familiar? He quotes this text right here. So I want to spend a moment just applying it like Paul did. Because he applies it a little bit different way. He applied this text by seeing that undealt with anger would fracture unity in relationships. It's a great threat to peace that he saw. We are right to be angry. And out a lot of things. But the problem comes when we take things into our own hands or don't listen to God's wisdom in the situation. And we let anger destroy instead of using it for righteous purposes. And there's a brief story in, in Luke 9 where Jesus is not welcomed by a Samaritan village. And James and John, the sons of thunder, want to call down fire from heaven onto the village to destroy it. Because they wouldn't. Let Jesus in. That's the bomb the abortion clinic approach. And Jesus rebukes them. They don't understand that there will be a day of judgment, yes. But God's kindness leads to repentance now. So we see that and we're like, yeah. just seems a little excessive, James and John. But how often do we do that? Child disobeys and God shall I strike this child down with thunderbolts of words of fury. Husband is unloving. Wife is disrespectful. A patient is rude. The wrong things. God, I shall be a willing vessel of making them feel your wrath. There's a reason the Bible says man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Often we return sin with sin. We try to take control and do things our way, returning evil for evil instead of overcoming evil with good because we don't trust. We don't trust God's way of humility, patience, self-control. Taken into our own hands and what we do is we miss out on the sweet experience of becoming more like God who is merciful to those who revile him. And the antidote, as David points to, and as Paul writes about, is deal with your anger by examining your hearts and trusting God. will help you sleep better. Get still before the Lord. I know this is scary to be in quiet today. How hard it is, as Tim preached last week, to be still and know that he is God. Blaise Pascal wrote... All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. In the 1700s, he wrote that. What would he say today? Mark Dever points out that there is no self-control without self-examination. No self-control without self-examination. So examine yourself as you seek peace. Be angry at your own sin. Take the log out of your own eye 
Learn how to process the anger so that your anger doesn't bring death and destruction to others, doesn't shrivel up your own joy and sap your peace. So the lies threaten peace, anger threatens peace, and lastly, gloom threatens peace. Gloom. Look at verse 6. There are, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Who will show us some good? David now turns to a batch of his own men, not the traitors anymore, turns to his own men who have become despondent. Understandable. They're just bemoaning their circumstances. They're tired. They're beat down and they're overcome by this like spiritual dryness that is sapping their peace. Who will show us some good? Where is God? Does he care? Is he going to show up? This gloom is just so meh for them. It hasn't given up, but it's not very active either. And maybe this is where you find yourself much more often than you'd like. And sometimes it's one painful trial or hard circumstance that kind of punch you in the mouth and rock your life and leave you here. But more often it's like water torture. It's just trip, trip, trip. Hard day at home with the kids, the monotony, wrestling with the monotony of everyday life, daily fighting feelings of insignificance, constant small battles with health or an unruly child or a tough marriage or depression or fatigue or finances, one after the other after the other, and you can't seem to catch a break. Trip, trip, trip. Or maybe everything's going well and you just, you just, don't know why there's just gloom you don't feel the love of god as much as you want to as much as you know he loves you you just soul is dry so you're just resigned to get by just survived you're not resigned your faith you've seen too much but your peace has left and you're wondering does god even see me these things just form a cloud over you and you're not alone you're not alone when you ask who will show me some good David's men here, his warriors, feel like this. And other saints throughout history have times of wondering the same things. One of our heroes of the faith, Martin Luther, suffered from great bouts of melancholy and depression. Some friends, during one particularly bad funk, encouraged him to get away for a couple days. Didn't help. Comes back, and upon arriving home, he found Kitty, his beloved wife, and their kids all dressed in black. Martin walks in. Oh, that's what Martin Luther sounded like. Oh, <laughs> who is dead? Why? Replied Kitty. Doctor, have you not heard that God is dead? My husband, Martin Luther, would never be in such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust in. But don't we functionally act like that? We act like God is dead. It's understandable. His face can seem so clouded. He must not be in control or he's, maybe he's not good or maybe he's not for me at the very least. Why would he be for me? I'm the man in Psalm 4 here. I've believed lies and loved worthless things. I have been angry and sinned greatly. I have not trusted in God as I ought. Down you go spiraling. It seems like the darkness will never lift. And here comes David back in verse 6 with the key to peace. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. 
Derek Kidner puts it like this. The prayer is David's. While his friends sigh for better times, he longs and prays for God. Not just to God, for God. He takes his blessing from numbers and he asks God, give us that. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you what our psalm is after. Give you peace. God himself is the key to peace when your peace is so threatened. We need the light to break through our shadow world of suffering. David knows here the traitors need God and his weary people need God. And you, if you're a traitor, you need God. And if you're God's child, you need God. You don't need him to turn your circumstances around. You don't need him to end the pain. We want that. And he often does. But what you need in your quest for peace is to know that he is with you. He is right there in everything. You need God. You need that iridescent smile of God on your life. If you can't look at the sun directly, what do you think of the brightness of the one who spoke the sun into existence with the smile is going to look like? You need this all-consuming light to scatter your darkness day in and day out. And you can have it. The light that shatters darkness can be yours. He can be yours. Because the light of the world was snuffed out by darkness for your darkness. All the darkness, all our sin, all the suffering came on Jesus, the true light. So that you who are in darkness could walk in eternal light. Now through faith in him, all we have is that perpetual smile of God. That's it. That's how he sees you. That's the key to peace. Everything your soul craves from a king is now yours. He's the better king than David. David was vindicated in Absalom's rebellion. He was vindicated when Absalom, the false king, was hung on a tree and put to death for his rebellion. We are vindicated when the true king was hung on a tree and put to death for our rebellion. And now everything in this psalm is ours. He is the God of your righteousness. In him you are perfect and he hears you. You're the godly that he sets apart for himself. He became the perfect and righteous sacrifice so that you would have to sacrifice no more. And you could put all your trust in him. He will show you all the good. The great good has given us himself. What's better than that? So you who rest in gloom, you don't have to hold your head in shame. You don't need to feel guilty. He's the great and compassionate king who sympathizes with all your weakness. He's the better king who intercedes for you just like David did for his men, whose heart runs to you in your suffering. Take a word from our sister psalm, from Psalm 3, and see that this light This Jesus, this God is the lifter of your head. He is your glory, is what it says. You come to him head down, tears flowing. He lifts you gently by the chin. And with a smile, he stares into your eyes. 
You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. That's the smile of God. And he, though we be tempted to doubt, is working for our good. That's what David knew here. This God is still in control. The same cross that brings us the smile of God teaches us about the sovereignty of God. This is not, this would not be the last time the nations raged against the anointed king. This is so key for understanding the sovereignty. In Acts 4, we read this. Truly in this city, in this same city that David was cast out of, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, the anointed king, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's hand planned the murder of God. God's plan, God's hand planned the crucifixion of Jesus. The worst evil in the history of the world, the murder of God. It's pretty bad. For the greatest and eternal good for the evil world. Your, your suffering is mysterious. But if you can stare at that, and he can do that with the worst of suffering, he can and will use yours for good as well. Now we have the delight of this sovereign God. This is the only thing that can truly disarm those threats to peace. The only thing that can overcome those lies, that anger, that gloom. Sometimes he does it incrementally. There's another song. Oh Lord, lighten my darkness. You know you've experienced it. It doesn't come all at once sometimes, but lighten my darkness. This peace brings joy that is unshakable. Getting to the end of our psalm now. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. This is is a comparison. It's not a bad thing to enjoy if your bread and wine are abounding. It's just not an ultimate thing. You know, don't set your heart on that. Don't let that be your hope. Pleasant circumstances, prosperity is just shaky ground to stand on. See, they were literally drinking David's wine. And they were feasting at his table. That's my table. You guys are eating at. Taking wine from my cellar. But he has God. And I may be in a cave, but I have God. And they have what? Bread and wine? I have eternal bread and wine. And I get to feast on it with my brothers and sisters. Every time we get together to remember that our joy is unshakable. Their joy is coming and going. Our joy is unshakable. One drop. One drop from the infinite river of delight is more satisfying than endless pints at the tap house of the world. One crumb from the feast of the king's table is greater than all you can eat at the table of man. So where are you going to go for your joy? You know there is something in you that is thirsty. Your soul is itching. Your soul has a desire for something this world cannot quench. C.S. Lewis wrote, If I find myself 
If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And in another place, he illustrates this beautifully with this rich story in the silver chair. Character Jill is super thirsty, is wandering around the woods, following the sound of running water, and she comes upon a stream. But next to that stream is a great lion, Aslan himself. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind just going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Do you eat girls? She asked fearfully. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Oh, I daren't come and drink then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. No, no, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. He is the fountain of life. Come and drink. The joy of the Lord is your rock. Our Christ fills our hearts with invincible joy. Rejoice and drink up. That's how you have peace. That's what our psalmist wants us to know. Now and only now, you get through that, can you have rest for your soul. Now and only now can you have true sleep. So wrapping up, look at verse 8. In peace... I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Knowing you have nothing to prove anymore, knowing you are perfect in him, knowing that all of his power is working to care for you, for your good, bring sleep at once. Meditate on this as you rest your head at night. Spurgeon wrote this. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. Sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. David may very well die. He knows that. Psalm 3 says, I'm surrounded by thousands of enemies. Even if the enemies kill me in my sleep, I dwell secure. I may not wake up, but because Jesus woke up, because Jesus rose, I will really wake up. Psalm 17, he writes, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I shall behold your smiling face when I get there. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. You are in your father's arms. Many of us know how sweet a newborn will sleep in your arms once you get him to sleep. Many of us know how bright the light of our own face beams at the child in our arms as they sleep soundly. We know how big our smiles get and how great our love extends to them while they rest so soundly. So God's for us. So God's for us, beloved children of God.
Let's pray. Lord God, fill our hearts with unshakable joy. And for those, uh, all of us who struggle to feel it, may we feel it more and more. Would you tear down our unbelief and build up our faith that you are smiling upon us, that you are working for our good, that you will build your church, that you will strengthen our souls. And enlighten the eyes of our heart that we may know the hope to which we have been called. And one day we will see you and hear, my beloved child, welcome. Amen.